0: Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we are joined today by Andy Garrett. Andy Garrett is the Workplace Adjustment Services and Accessibility Director at GSK, and also the ERG lead there. And he's a Purple Space ambassador and, and, and assist Deborah. and we're all big fans of, of Purple Space. So, Andy, it's been a long time coming. Uh, you know, I, we talked with you at the ILO GBDN a little while back, but it's I see a long while back COVID does these things to us. It's great to have you with us and, and feature you on on the show. So you've been working in the field for a long time. Can you tell us a bit about your journey and, and the role that you play within GSP?
1: Yes, of course. Firstly thank you uh, for inviting me to to join you on 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 this session. Um Really happy to share a little bit about my backstory. Um, you know, I'm working in a global pharmaceutical company now, but I actually started out um, as a police officer in London, doing what what cops do, a bit like on the TV, um, but with a bit more paperwork. Um, working in the front line, um, but when I was in my very early 30s, um, I realised I couldn't quite see what I should be able to see. I couldn't read the number plate, the street sign, recognise the faces, um, and and had to go through, you know. Investigations. Uh, to cut a long story short, I have a retinal um, dis- disorder called macular dystrophy. Um, so it's a genetic condition that kind of switched on around that time um, and it affects the central field of my vision. So things are blurry for me, a bit like for people who are very short sighted, but uh, it's not something for which um, spectacles and refraction can help with. Um, so I'm, I'm left with that blurry world. My peripheral vision is okay. But that had quite a profound impact on the safety of me working in my chosen profession at the time. Uh, and I really wasn't ready to take um, a medical pension. I felt I had a lot to offer still in that in that world, in policing. So I moved initially into training and development uh, at the police training school at Hendon uh, in London uh, and got a real interest uh, at that time, of course, around diversity and inclusion um, the police had an exemption from the equality legislation back then. But, you know, I sort of self-armed with knowledge. I realised quite rightly that the government had decided to change that and remove that exemption. So I suppose I was in the right place at the right time. Um I I stayed on in that organisation to to help them to become a more modern employer, uh, both in London um, and nationally. So I set up a disability network in policing, um, in in London, and then helped with a, a forming forming national networks f- to support people with health conditions and disabilities in policing. Uh, so I stayed through to my term of thirty years and retired in two thousand fifteen. But through my external networking, uh, I was working with Kate Nash. I was on the editorial board for the seminal piece of work around secrets and big news, you know, how people share their disability information with their employers and how employers respond. And it was through that connection, of course, was formed Purple Space. Kate um, is a strategic advisor to what we have at GSK called the Global Disability Council, our governance forum for our disability confidence strategy. Um, They had decided back in 2016 that they really needed to invest in their workplace adjustments support for their global workforce um so introductions were made and i came to gsk initially on a 12-month fixed term contract but they liked what i was doing the model i put forward um and i took the permanent role i've been at gsk six years now um so starting that model with the uk and extending out to north america uh, um, and canada um belgium um Ireland. Uh, We're working on your other European expansion at the moment, and I've got a pilot running in India because I really want to push workplace adjustments uh, support—the model that we um, have—into APAC as well. So, uh, quite a big remit. It
0: sounds like it, and and I I know from talking with Susan Scott Parker he's been really impressed with the the leadership council and the governance, and it's you're one of the few organisations that has a sort of Similar governance approach to the one we have within our own organization, so how did you get the executive to agree that it was it was an executive issue and, and that it was a governance issue and to start putting that structure in place uh,
1: yeah, perfect question um, because I, I I get asked this question a lot. I do a lot of engagement calls with other organizations they've learned I think a bit about the model we've done at Gsk. Um, and my first question uh, when I went to GSK, why are you doing this? Do you just want to be compliant with legislation um, or something else? Uh, and at GSK, they were absolutely clear that the imperative here was to enable productivity and inclusion. Yeah. And so we I put forward a model um I outlined what the common barriers are for people with disabilities to have the confidence to ask for adjustments and accommodations um, the barriers that process gets in the way uh, you know finding the right things that people need um, and getting the approvals through and finding the right supply chain um, and that you know people were able to get the things that they needed at GSK but those barriers still existed you know who qualified? Who was disabled enough to warrant that support? Um, how do you find the budget? Who pays? All of the common things that we're familiar with. Um, so I decided to bin them all and say, well, let's work a little bit differently. Uh, and we introduced a centralized model. Uh, whereby people could have the confidence to come through our process. Um, we partnered um, initially in the UK with a, a specialist workplace adjustments organization, in in this case, Microlink, um, to have a conversation with the individual. What is it you need? Um, and how do we get it to you? Um, so then the centralized model aspect of that was... Um, Let's help to identify what you need in terms of adjustments and accommodation for you to thrive uh, and to be your best self and to feel included at work. Yeah. To support your productivity. Let's get those to you as quickly as possible. So centrally, we can um, raise the purchase order and get the items you know, shipped out to wherever you might be. Uh, we've taken a country by country approach to that. But in terms of the business case for the organization, you know, the focus there is on delivering a, a model that works for people and managers. They can focus on their day jobs um, and, and we deliver compliance as a happy byproduct. So it matters less to us why you need the adjustment or accommodation to be your best self at work. Uh, many people will need an adjustment or an accommodation long before the law would qualify them as having a disability or they themselves might think of their situation as fitting the disability paradigm um, and and definitions vary in in so many different countries so yeah for us we we swept swept away the medical model you know we we embrace the the social model of focusing on what do you need and how do we get it to you Um, so you don't need to sit in front of a medical professional if you need a you know, a a bespoke, you know, ergonomic solution or a bit of assistive software. Um, We still, of course, engage with those professionals where we might need to, but far less so. Very few of our cases now involve um, engagement with with the traditional occupational health route. Uh, So we focus on getting people what they need to be successful and, and included. Uh, And we've been building out the specialist supply chain as we've expanded that service into other markets, um, as as I've said. So that was how I I won over the council. It was very clear that this was um, a productivity and an inclusion model. And actually, I've now got the metrics when I go to other countries. It's it's actually quite cheap. You know, our average cost is is under a £1,000 end to end. And that's for the process any assessment if it's needed and it isn't always um, and the solutions themselves um, so a thousand pounds to equip someone to be successful in their role uh, in, in any business let alone a business like ours is 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 nothing um, so we've proved out that it works uh, people love the service the feedback is is highly positive so that Helps us as we expand into other markets. Um, when we're speaking to senior leaders about what we're trying to do, it's a very good feel-good message um, to do the right thing.
2: Andy, um, welcome. Uh, you mentioned that you have the, uh, started in UK and then you're doing the project in other countries. But, uh, but uh, how do you manage uh, expectations, particularly from people who work at countries where that support doesn't exist, and they? Oh, it's, it's, it was so great that I could work in UK or I could work in another camp because they have all that. How do you manage those expectations?
1: I mean, the main challenge for us, like I've mentioned, is the specialist supply chain. Um, in fact, we're working on that at the moment. We, we've we gone country by country as we build the supply chain. I'm in the midst of writing a global policy, which will be rolling out at the end of this year, because the global policy will set the tone for each of those countries. And whilst we might not have the specialist supply chain ready, we're hoping Um, by late this year or at some point next year to be able to have the service available to everyone even if they have to go through local procurement you know once we've identified the things that you need um you know so yeah managing expectations we engage with um our customers um, directly they can ask us questions in confidence about how the process works um we can talk them through what the right solutions are for their circumstances. That's where we use Microlink, for example, to do that non-medical adjustment needs assessment, um, which then recommends that for an end user, they need perhaps product A, B and C. Uh, not to forget, of course, a number of people with disabilities will need um, adjustments and adaptations to their ways of working. You know, And again, that's the idea behind our global policy, to say to our leaders let's start from a position of yes yes you can have that adjustment that accommodation uh, unless there's a very good justification for no it's not possible or we'll give you something else Um, and again um, the end users find that um, they value the confidentiality in the service they value that they don't need to have that conversation with their manager if they don't want to. We'd like them to talk to their manager about their adjustment and accommodation support, and to be proud of their disability difference. But we recognise that that doesn't work for everyone. Um, so they can come in confidence to us, and we can we can run the process, not involving their manager. Uh, we can, uh, and, and that work for GSK uh, for us that that really valuable part of our model.
3: All right. I wanted to see if Antonio was going to follow up. So I'm going to come in. So um, first of all, we really, really are grateful. And I love the story that you had that um, you just went out and created it and the GSK said, well, okay, this makes good business sense. So kudos, kudos to you on that. Um, How many countries are you in? I I would assume GS, yeah, I I think you're in a lot of countries, but how many countries do y'all claim?
1: We are yeah we're we're in I think over 90 countries in some way shape or form you know we're employing um, before we demerge yeah you know approaching 100,000 employees and contractors together Um, so you know. We're not there yet. We, you know, we our reach at the moment is is around fifty five percent of our global headcount, where we've got the end to end specialist supply chain wow. uh, to be able to, you know, to be able to provide people very quickly with the things that they need. Um, um, work to do to extend into those other markets.
3: And and I just want to say, Andy, I agree. We always have more work to do. There is always more to do. But at the same time, we want to celebrate all the work you've actually done so far that has really made a global impact. And so I know we got a lot of work to do. But thank you for all the work you have done and your team has done so far. But, okay, now I'm going to ask you the hard – no, these aren't hard questions. but. Yeah. I also know, you know, Microlink and we've loved you. We've had him on. He's a wonderful guy. He's also been very supportive of access chat, but one thing here in the States, for example, and I know you are in the States is that we don't want to identify and people with disabilities, even if they need accommodations or adaptions, they're really afraid that if they come out and tell somebody that they're going to be discriminated against. And so how do you, make it safe for the employees to be able to tell you. Because the goal, I hope that everybody, the employees would think was that the goal is to make you as productive as possible so that you can be happy because people want to do a good job. So are you finding that in some countries it's harder for people to understand, really, we really do just want to accommodate and support you so you can be productive. Are you finding more countries are resistance? and how are y'all? There's just so many moving parts with all of this, which is what we say a lot. And these gigantic brands, real easy to say, just do this, Andy when you're dealing with so many variables, so.
1: No, and it's a really good thing to call out. You know, we're dealing with individuals here and their private information uh, and their own personal journey about, you know, their disability information. And there is in, you know, most markets in more, you know, you mentioned the U.S., Perhaps more so in the US than other markets, there is an element of fear. You know, we called that out in that secrets and big news work many years ago. That people are fearful about putting their hand up to say, "Yes, I have a condition that that could be a disability, and I need something different." Which is a, a, a the reason why we decide partly why we came up with the model where you can come to our service in confidence um, and you don't need to go and have that conversation with your manager to if you like feel you have to justify your circumstances and share private information about your medical diagnosis that's not the important part it's it's again with our communications that go out to our leaders it's so important that they understand this is a productivity driver how do we equip people for success yeah we've moved on in the estates and facilities and the other worlds one size doesn't fit all Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the point here is that people might have, you know, a difference in, in in terms of health condition or disability, and they need something different for them to be successful. And I've really recognised the privacy of that information. So, yeah, that's why we put the model in whereby they can come to us in confidence. Well, you wow. know, we won't share any of that information with their manager. Um, we've gone through global privacy review on the data that we capture, even to the point where If we do decide to run a non-medical assessment using Microlink and their specialist providers to identify for an individual, you know, let's say with a learning difference, you know, what their information processing barriers are and to recommend the right solutions to help build, you know, support their productivity, the report, you know, comes back to the individual, to the employee. We put a copy on the occupational health record, but it's sealed that's where it stays. Wow. I don't even see the reports. I don't need to see the report. I don't know. I don't need to know why you, with your, what the specifics of your health condition are. My team needs to know what's been recommended so that we can go out and source it and get it to that individual. Um And if anyone asks us for that report, then they don't get it unless the employee consents.
3: Oh, that's, That's so, I love listening to corporate brands that are figuring out all these gigantic moving parts. And I want to say also, we are all living in the days of the great resignation where 40% of people had said they will not be with the same brand. And also I believe that we're living with a time when um, some people do not want to work for big brands because there's a perception all corporate brands are evil. And um, of course that's ridiculous because, It's made up of people and most people aren't evil. But one thing I love about what you're doing and not only that you're accommodating your employees so that they can bring their best selves to work, which is why would we want to do anything different, but it also... You're fighting for talent like every other brand. And so I believe doing things like this makes you an employer of choice. And I know that that's something that's very important more and more to the younger generations. They want to work for an organization that cares about their people. So your program alone at GSK must be so powerful, um, And and that's why we're really honored that we can um, continue to spread the word. But I just wanted to point out some of those variables that GSK is benefiting from because they're actually caring about their employees and making it safe to make it to, to help us be productive. I also want to make another point that I think people forget is that you you might need to accommodate an employee that's working with you multiple times. You know, As we live our lives, as we're working for you, our needs change. I know as I started hitting the 40s, I started not being able to see as well. I can't hear as well, I, and I'm way past the 40s now, way, way past. But I also wanted to just uh, make that comment because I know that's something Neil deals with as well. But also I think people forget that. You don't just do it once, right? Yeah. Or maybe I'm wrong, Andy. You just do it once. You're done. Boom. Sorry.
1: No, no, and and people <laughs> do come round again. That people's needs change over time. You know, for us, it's another one of the uh, drivers for why we want to do it this way. You know, GSK is a is a healthcare organisation. Yeah, pharmaceutical. Um, I know we're demerging at the moment. Uh, our consumer healthcare business, but you know, we're very sensitive naturally about the data that we capture. Within our business, within our product development, dealing with patients and consumers, um, and the pharma business, of course, you know, handling very sensitive information about people's, you know, health circumstances, uh, and and our new, um, our, our new language of unite. You know, I was telling you earlier about how we we, our new branding is about uniting science and technology with talent to get ahead of disease together. Yeah, and the talent bit is really important you know we've got to bring in diverse talent to help with our innovation and how we develop products um, to think differently about um, big problems big data um, big science and of course we need people that are able to perform and and think and function differently so the diversity and inclusion imperative for us particularly with regards to disability and health conditions, we really want to attract that talent into our business because it makes us better at developing the products and of course, engaging with patients as we develop, you know, medicines and vaccines, you know, people with disabilities and health conditions are a part of what we do. So um, it's a really important business driver for us to get it right, not just for our people, but to set the tone for how we engage with our key stakeholders, healthcare professionals, patients, Mm -hmm. and consumers.
0: Essentially, you're reinforcing your brand identity through the work that you're doing. I think you raised a couple of points that I want to go back to around the sort of cognitive assessments and stuff like that. I know that quite often what happened in other cases is that the manager gets sent the report before the employee oh. and and that no this, this is a you know a, a real real problem because it, and and why programs like yours and, and and our access unit are really important because we are not perceived as threatening in the same way that occupational health has been seen to be a tool through which people are exited from the business. Now not all occupational health appointments are that sinister, but people perceive them in that way because it, they have been used as ways and tools for managers in the past in organizations to, to find a way to get rid of uh, an individual and to manage them out of the organization. So we demedicalized, like you, um, because we recognize that what we want is to win the trust of the
1: individual. Indeed. And frankly, the manager is just not qualified to interpret that kind of information. So, no, we don't want them to have that. We want to be able to say to the manager, we've run a due process and to maximise the productivity for this individual. These are the items that they need um, and and we've supplied those uh, and we've spent the money. Um, and actually as a back-end process we do cross charge back to the line of business but the line of manager doesn't get a say it just it's just about where the costs sit on the balance sheet but equally they're not getting distracted from their day job trying to manage a process that they usually don't understand too well mm-hmm. you might deal with a person with health condition or disability a couple of times through your career and you can train till you're blue in the face and most some you know most will want to do the right thing but f- perhaps managers feel like they're treading on eggshells in this subject they're not that what i would call disability confident um so they're actually grateful in my experience they're grateful to have a due process there is that is is running the process for them yeah um
0: uh, i agree and i think the other thing is if you're going back to secrets and and big news we um for sure you know kate talked about Disclosure being a dirty word and it's sounding like you've done something terrible. So I think that the the move towards identification and self-identification is important, but but that requires a culture change. So so you're also, you know, you mentioned that you're you're the lead of the ERG. What role does the ERG play in changing the culture at GSK?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because something that um, encouraged me to step up and 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 co lead the the network. Um, I talked earlier about our governance forum for our disability confidence strategy. Um, you know, it's led by a member of our global leadership team, and it's got you know, very senior people, senior vice presidents from around the business, driving a number of work streams to, to improve our disability confidence. Myself and my co-lead colleague, Tracy from the US, we are active members. We're members of the core team on that council. So when we were looking at um, assessing where 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 are we in terms of disability confidence, we chose to use the UK Business Disability Forum Disability Standard. Um, Tracy and I led the work around the business to gather the evidence against the ten sections and one hundred and sixty criteria for that um, assessment to give us our baseline of where we are um, as a as co lead of the network, we did a huge piece of work capturing voice of customer. What does it feel like as a person working at g s k um, when things don 't go well for disability inclusion? What would you like to see so with that um, evidence baselining around the business, with that voice of customer through the disability network, that's what we use to inform our three-year disability confidence plan and the um, six key work streams that are within that. I lead two of those work streams myself uh, around workplace adjustments as one work stream um, and another one about our accessible premises. We have an HR work stream. We've also got a digital accessibility work stream, another work looking at how we develop our products and services and how we work with our suppliers and partners. So, yeah, as members of our or co-leading our disability, we're at we're front and center at the table, helping to set the strategy, look at the governance and you know the measures of how we um, how are we measuring our progress toward disability confidence? Um, you know, it's about us, so we should be at that table. So, you know, I'm, I'm immensely proud that we're part of that um, governance as well as how we support our our employee voice into the into the change that people need.
2: And I, you mentioned workplace, you, you have mentioned uh, hiring talent. So I'm very curious to you know, we are here connected remotely, you no know, from home or from work. Uh, I would like to know about your approach to this new hybrid workplace. How are you making it working, uh, this workplace for everyone? Because we have a new set of tools now coming that everyone needs to use to collaborate, to ideate. So how are you making all this happening in a productive way?
1: Again, it's like i fed you the questions. I haven't, I promise, but you're, it's so good giving me the opportunity to, to tell you about what we've been doing. Um, the COVID experiment, if you like, the pandemic, the dreadful pandemic that we've endured in the last two years, arguably has been a good thing for people with disabilities because it's proved that your employees can be trusted if they're equipped to work in hybrid settings and remote settings. So, you know, technology was one of the first things. We have manufacturing sites, we have labs, we have offices. And of course, some jobs have to be done on site. You know, you can't make pills and vaccines from home. But there are aspects of that work that can be done in a hybrid way. So, you know, collaboration tools like Teams, Um, we worked with Microsoft as a strategic partner with them to accelerate our adoption of Microsoft Teams and its accessibility features like captioning. We accelerated our rollout of Teams so that it could equip people to work from home. Um, I I remember we were asked to look at, we, we had a policy around working remotely. And of course, it was all about temporary. You know, how do you equip someone to work from home? But of course, it's no longer temporary. We're now working You know, I think I've been in in, into one of our sites twice in the last two years. You just cannot expect any employee, whether they have a health condition, disability or not, to use a laptop balanced off the ironing board in the kitchen, you know, in one corner of someone's bedroom. It's just not ergonomically sound. So, again, you know, with less people going to our sites, yes, we've reduced our footprint, um, but we've reinvested that money in equipping people to work from home. We we introduced a process, we call it performance with choice, whereby people could have a conversation to, de- to decide which ways work better for them, whether it's one day in the site or permanently from home working remotely, what works for you as an individual. But an important part of that is we set a stipend in each country. If you need to go out and buy some equipment, we put a supply chain in place and say, "Here's a catalogue. You can go and buy your standard desk chair, monitor that you might need." Uh, but uh, you know, and that was up to a certain value in the UK. I think it was five hundred pounds. But we were absolutely clear that if you needed something bespoke and specialist, if you had a disability or health condition, our service was always geared up to help people wherever they work, whether they're working at home or on site or both. Um, So, yeah, you're not we're not bound by those financial limits. We we can still run the process and and, and an assessment, usually remotely, um, on site or at home. And we can supply those products and solutions um, wherever you're working. Um, And an an important investment in, in centrally in assistive software You know, you don't have to go and buy your own license of Dragon or JAWS or ZoomText. You know, these are now all um, available centrally on our, you know, you can't just get software at GSK off the Internet. You know, there are firewalls to go through. So we put all of the assistive tools onto our software hub internally. They've all been tested and scripted for compatibility with our systems. And not only that, we've also set up... um, a tech support team. So if it breaks, there's someone that can help you with your assistive software. We've got Microlink to train them to help with fixes. That could be your only access to the role that you have if, if perhaps you have low vision software, for example. Um, again, it's about equipping people in ways that, that work for them, removing the barriers. If you needed assistive software, for example, you go and find it on our tool and you can have it within hours. It's auto approved.
0: Yeah. You know. It's it's one of those things that when you have that centralized approach, you can package the software and you can deploy it. I know we can deploy stuff and people can have it installed within a couple of hours, multiple language versions. Yeah. And you know I you know, we know clients where they haven't taken that approach. People can wait months and years to for stuff to go through processes and the benefits of centralization are you have a consistent tool set you can test against it you can keep that interoperability going between the the your yeah. your assistive tech and your mainstream tech and your line of business applications that that's really important to enable people to do their jobs. so credit to you for having done the, the work and continue to maintain that because i think it's really important and, and as Deborah has pointed out in the chat yeah you're not wasting licenses as well because you know who's using a frequency of use uh, and all of this kind of stuff so, and, so and when
1: people and when people leave the business those licenses get recycled yes to new users not. and it's yeah. not just about providing this the assistive software and the text excuse me the tech support um, again through our vendors through microlink we can if you're a new user of assistive software we remotely, we can provide training in how to use it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's super important. And, and, and that training means it's not shelfware. I mean, that was the other thing that we found with a lot of clients that didn't have that centralized approach was that you would have multiple different versions and you'd, or you'd go and you know, in the days where you'd move from maybe Windows XP to Windows 7, you go, right, well, we need to upgrade our JAWS users. Where, where are the JAWS? Oh, well, there's a box in a cupboard somewhere.
1: We did encounter a problem with that when we when we when we upgraded i think it may have been to windows 10 um, and we found that some of our assistive software licenses were not compatible Um, so we learned from that and we've now baked that in to our system upgrade process that any new system or platform or upgrade that we purchase now has to be tested against our assistive products if we need to upgrade to the next version of Claro Read or whatever that software is, then we we proactively do that. We don't wait for someone to be locked out because it's no. not compatible. No,
0: that's right. I mean, I think that you're one of the few organisations that's doing evergreen uh, accessibility really well. You know, it's something that we do. We offer it as a service to our clients, but. You're doing it independently and, and, and that's fantastic. So um you know and and that proactivity just means that you you're not getting the calls where people are saying, I can't work any longer. Yeah. We we had one organization who shall remain nameless and said, Why are we paying you lots of money? We have like three tickets. That's the point. The point is That everyone can work, and it's a it's a rarity when something breaks because you're being proactive, so it's an investment. So running a track
1: service gives you the opportunity to look at the metrics for service improvement. Where are the pinch points? How do you improve things? What's what's not working, you know, frequently, so that you can, you know, build a more inclusive system. You know, our digital accessibility work stream is one of the um core work streams in our Disability Council, because, you know, we're in the digital age. Digital is the great enabler. And we know, well, I know personally that accessible tools, you know, that will what enable me to do my job day to day and to interact. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's vitally important that we make it as easy as possible because the productivity losses of locking someone out, um, of they're unable to work as, to their best ability, how would you feel about that? Um, so it's it's you know it's so important that we look at how do you equip people for success in their way.
0: Absolutely. I, on that note, we'll we'll end. We need to thank Mike ClearText for keeping this captioned and accessible. Andy, it's been a, a great pleasure speaking with you, and we look forward to you joining us on Twitter.
1: Thank you. Delightful chatting through these issues with you and we just hope that more organizations can take that if you like the the more inclusive and and less um compliant driven approach you know think about the productivity gains of doing the right thing
3: so true so true